At Genentech, addressing the often overlooked drivers of health inequities starts with asking bigger questions. Are communities of color merely underrepresented in research, or have they been historically and systemically excluded? What can we learn from the wisdom of communities most harmed by injustice when we talk with them instead of at them? What does it take to become worthy of their trust? Addressing these questions and many others starts with acknowledging the root cause of health inequities, systemic racism. As the founders of the biotech industry, Genentech is actively working with community organizations to repair the damage caused by systemic racism and improve health outcomes. Learn more about how Genentech is working to transform society at gene.com slash askbiggerquestions. So it is Easter Sunday, and I just pulled up to a spot in Hempstead where volunteers from Community Solidarity are setting up to give away food to members of the community here. There's about a dozen, maybe two dozen folks wearing masks, pulling out boxes and boxes of what looks like fresh produce. I'm going to go and see if I can speak with one of the organizers. Oh, all of those cars. Yeah. Oh, oh, wow. You know you got white people cutting in line? Uh-huh. So they'll get in drive Community Solidarity is a vegetarian food share that gives out free fruits, vegetables, bread, and other groceries to low-income communities across Long Island. Every Sunday, they set up shop in this Hempstead parking lot about three-fourths of a mile away from the train station. Parts of Hempstead are food deserts. That means that many of the people who live here don't have easy access to fresh produce and groceries. The Nassau County Comptroller had identified 13 census districts in the county that face food insecurity. In these locations, at least 500 people live more than half a mile away from a supermarket or grocery store. Five of those 13 neighborhoods are here in Hempstead. When I went to visit this food share in spring, it was a chilly, windy afternoon. The food share volunteers had some cool tunes playing in the parking lot. It really set the mood, almost gave me a community barbecue type of vibe. There were scores of cars lined up in rows at the back of the parking lot. It was similar to something you would see at the start of a NASCAR race. Each one of the cars had a family waiting inside, some with kids in the back seat. Some of the cars started lining up as early as 10 a.m. in preparation for the free boxes of food that's given out around 3 p.m. I met a man named James Boone, a resident of Hempstead for more than 30 years. It's, it's, it's bad because on any given Sunday, we get over three, 400 cars here, and we have a walk-up ride. That we get like two, 300 bags for them. But in Hempstead in general, it's, it's bad because it's no food. Everybody's struggling because it's no money. James tells me that in the 16 years he's been giving food out to his community, this year he's seen people struggle more than he's ever seen before. It's, it's crazy because it's more people than we had imagined that we would have here. You know? And I've never seen it this bad out there. 
well, as far as the food and security goes. My name is Nicholas St. Fleur, and this is Color Code, a podcast about health disparities and racism in medicine. This season, we're focusing on health equity issues on Long Island. In this episode, we're taking a look at food insecurity. We'll be talking about how food insecurity disproportionately impacts black and brown communities, and we'll highlight some of the community efforts that are helping struggling Long Islanders feed their families. Tell me a bit about what you have so far. I see some strawberries. Well, I got potatoes, strawberries, broccoli, cucumbers. I don't know what this is. <laughs> Cilantro, apples, mandarin. A little bit of everything, you know? Right. Um, Alan Acosta has been volunteering with Community Solidarity for over a year. Because he speaks Spanish, he also serves as a translator, which is helpful because many of the people who come to the food share in Hempstead are Latino. Each box that volunteers like him fill is piled high with fruits and veggies. Once he fills up his box, Alan then puts it into an enormous pile of cardboard boxes that are also overflowing with colorful vegetarian food. What's going on here in Hempstead is something we're seeing happen all across the country. With extended pandemic benefits to SNAP, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, winding down in February, and inflation sky high, Many families are struggling to put food on the table, especially in places with a high cost of living, like Long Island. Some volunteers, like James Boone, wake up every Sunday at 6 a.m. to drive vans to Trader Joe's and other grocery stores across Long Island. There, they pick up produce that's about to be thrown out in the dumpsters. It took James, Alan, and the dozen or so other volunteers several hours to unpack the van and put together a couple hundred boxes. There's also a spot near the sidewalk where the volunteers have about 75 grocery bags filled with food. The bags are for people who don't have cars, who walked or took the bus to the food share. I spent the entire day with these volunteers, and man, they were just going nonstop. On some days, they serve several hundred people, so much so that they have to turn people away as supplies often run out. Look at that, you have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine rows going down one two three four five going up and then on the side it's another one two three four five six so i can't do the math off my head but it's probably a lot (laughs) (laughs) it's a lot it's getting close to 3 30 p.m when the distribution starts right now it's going to be like rush time you know rush hour when they come up we just fill them up Depending on how many people are in the car, let's say there's three people in the car, we put four boxes. And if we, we got plenty today, so they might get two extra boxes. It's gonna be a, a good Easter for a lot of folk. Correct. That's, that's good, you know, especially in these times. Right now, times are, times are tough for a lot of people. Getting off winter, starting summer, you know, some people don't work that much. So this is a, good, a lot of help. Because I know a lot of people who come in the cars, and I've been living in Hempstead for like 19 years already. So I know a lot of people here, you know. People come here really early, like 10 in the morning, they're already in line waiting. We're ready. See the time? Okay. And with that, John says he's ready. The cars are filing in. 
To learn more about food insecurity on Long Island, I spoke with Jessica Rosati. She's the Chief Program Officer for Long Island Cares, Inc., which is a large food bank here. She walked me through what she's been seeing at her food bank. When we talk about insecurity, food insecurity, what do we mean? Food insecurity really means that you do not have sufficient means to adequately meet your food needs. Food is a basic necessity. So when we look at food needs and and determining if someone is food insecure, we're really asking questions that's around, how do you get your food? Do you have access to food? Do you have the means to source and procure your food? And that's just the basis, right? Her organization estimates that more than 221,000 Long Islanders experience food insecurity. Of that, about 65,000 are children. As Jessica explains, food insecurity is when people don't have enough reliable access to healthy food. Often it's the result of poverty or the unequal allocation of food and other resources. And that's why I think, sadly, there's a correlation between obesity and poverty and obesity and food insecurity. Because a lot of times when a family is destitute, they'll seek to secure their food needs at whatever means cost, right? And cheap foods are really the bad foods, the foods that are mostly processed, where food banking really rests in a lot of education and educating families on healthy food options, even if you have limited resources. According to Long Island Cares, 70% of people facing food insecurity here are from minority populations. Many experience language, education, or transportation barriers. And beyond Long Island, these disparities exist in many black and brown communities across the country. About 20% of black Americans and 17% of Latino Americans face food insecurity, while only 7% of white households are impacted, according to the USDA. Jessica said that the majority of Long Islanders who use emergency food networks like food banks and food chairs are people working full-time or multiple part-time jobs. So, you know, we serve truly the working poor individuals who are working and still unfortunately do not make enough means to successfully independently maintain um, for their family. That's where food banks come in and food pantries, they're a supplement to your food needs. And on Long Island, sadly, um, all we've seen as a result of the pandemic coupled with inflation and the rising cost of goods is an increased need of the regular working family here on Long Island turning to the food pantries to supplement their food needs. Nearly half of the people that Long Island Cares serves are considered working poor. And about 60% of those people make less than the federal poverty rate, which is $30,000 for a family of four. I asked Jessica to share some of the reasons that Long Islanders face food insecurity. The cost of living here on Long Island is extraordinarily high. It's very high. And as a result of that, the other things that we have to have, right, in order to live independently, a roof over our head, heat in our homes, gas in our cars, these things take precedence over choosing healthy foods for ourselves and our families. And, you know, when you experience individuals or families that have specific dietary restrictions, oh man, that just, you know, adds on to the stress of being able to procure the foods that they need. There's also about 63,000 Long Islanders who are food insecure and yet not eligible for SNAP because their income might be too high. Can you tell us, like, food insecurity on Long Island, 
What are we seeing today? Is it going up? Is it going down? I had like a brief, I don't know, maybe six week period in 2022 that I was doing the happy dance in my office. And I was like, yes, numbers are going down. And then they went up because all of the provisions that were in place for the pandemic slowly ended. With that ending, February 28th, from March 1st to what was Friday, March 17th, we had 207 new families registered just alone in our pantries, 207 new families. So that's a direct result of a government program ending and the direct result of what happens when that ends. That's going to continue to happen. Government subsidies, SNAP benefits, food stamps, or you know, cash allotments, all of those programs are now ending because the pandemic is now, if you will, in remission, right? But what we've seen on the flip side is now this whole new basis of people that weren't in need before but now are. But it's not just the greater geopolitical climate that's driving food insecurity on Long Island. There are also local structural forces at play here, according to John Stefanian. John is the president and CEO of Community Solidarity, the food share that's running this program here in Hempstead. So the way Long Island is set up, it's a, it's a series of towns, villages, and hamlets, and it's very segregated. We have very extremely wealthy communities um, that control most of the townships, but most of the townships will have uh, poorer communities that are in these villages. And so they'll, they'll starve out those villages from a lot of services. So people that are in Hempstead Village, they pay the same exact school tax as people that are in Garden City, and yet the schools in Hempstead Village are nowhere near what the schools in Garden City are like. You can just literally go down the road in Garden City and the roads are beautiful with like brick line sidewalks and like beautiful uh, potted plants everywhere. And then over here, there's potholes everywhere. And, you know, things are kind of left to, to rot. And um, there's a lot of structural uh, discrimination that it goes on in these communities. And there's a lot of need in these communities. And so for a lot of these people, like, you know, 40, 50 pounds of groceries, that used to be 120 bucks. Now it's probably 200 bucks. And so each person coming down on this line is saving $200 a week. That's money they can put towards other things that are more important in their lives. Like it's gas to get to work. It's, you know, a kid's education. It's shoes for your kid. It's just, it's that wiggle room that people really don't have anymore. Walking around Hempstead, I notice a market here and there, but not a lot of places to get fresh produce. As we mentioned earlier in the beginning of the episode, parts of Hempstead are classified as a food desert. There are about 25 food deserts across Long Island, according to the USDA. Food deserts, again, are locations where it's nearly impossible to get access to fresh, nutritious produce and groceries. But food deserts aren't the only words used to describe what's going on in these communities. There's a governmental term. It's really fucked up. It's called, uh, oh, sorry, it's, it's, um, it's, it's called weed and seed. So this is a weed and seed community. And so like back in the 70s, 60s and 70s, they used to have redlining for, you know, like institutional discrimination. And then everyone realized what that was. So now they come up with like, this new name called weed and seed, which is like you want to weed out the people in the community you don't want. And then you want to seed in new people. And that's like the form of gentrification. So this is a weed and seed community where they're purposely trying to starve people out and push them out. There's a lot of plans for development that, you know... Tamber Ray Stevenson uses an even stronger term for what we see in places like Hempstead, which have large black and brown populations. 
that term, food apartheid. So when we talk about a food apartheid that understands the structural inequities rooted in historical policies and contemporary that still play out the same injustice. And it's understanding that it's rooted not only in race and geography, but also in economics. Tambor is the founder and CEO for WANDA, Women Advancing Nutrition, Dietetics, and Agriculture. Wanda helps empower Black women to tackle issues of systemic racism in the food system. They host workshops, fellowships, and they do advocacy work. She lives in Washington, D.C., but her work also addresses issues across the country. And so when you look at South Africa and how apartheid uh, showed its ugly head with this extreme um, living conditions and and suffering and oppression, this is what we see when we think about food apartheid is how have we created an environment where we have disabled and created an obesogenic environment that ensures that anyone who is living in that community will have a life expectancy at least 10 to 30 years shorter than someone on the other side of town. And so um, beyond redlining that we see around housing inequities, uh, these pervasive systemic uh, inequities are seen through the lens of food. And it's all connected to economic um, disparities. The basis is poverty. Um, If you cannot afford food, uh, you are insecure. In addition to Hempstead, there are some other food deserts on Long Island. One such place is Wyandanch, which is in the western part of Suffolk County. It's about 40 miles from Manhattan. Earlier this year, Jessica authored a report called Equitable Food Access, an assessment of racial and cultural food barriers on Long Island. As part of the report, they took a closer look at Wyandanch. Wyandanch has about 13,000 people. It's about 60% Black and 35% Hispanic. Nearly a quarter of the population live below the poverty line. Long Island Cares reported that from January 2022 to October 2022, their food pantries and other emergency food providers had given out 854 thousand meals to people in the Wyandanch community. And although Wyandanch is very, um, I want to say heavily supported with community organizations, so there's a lot of nonprofit action, there's a lot of really good resources, um, they still remain impoverished. We're missing something, right? If we have all the support and people remain in poverty, then there's an issue there. We're not, we're not moving the needle. For the report, they interviewed members of the community to get their views about food access in Wyandanch. The researchers came back with some themes from their conversations. Food deserts, lack of transportation, inflation, wealth inequality, high cost of living, inadequate and inefficient government programs, and generational poverty. A few of the quotes really struck me. It said, quote, Half of the people are holding onto their houses by the skin on their bodies. Another said, quote, inflation is killing me. It's killing me because of food shopping. I used to go into the store and spend a good $280 and be all right. But now I go in the store and I'm spending $500. So I asked Jessica, what are the solutions to Long Island's food insecurity issue? What can be done? 
advocate, advocate, advocate. Uh, in the New York State budget, there's a cut to hunger prevention. So we've been advocating wholeheartedly um, for Governor Hochul to put that back in her budget. For us, it kind of creates a perfect storm, right? When you see an increased need and then you see a cuts to programs, you're like, what? Because um, we still have an ethical responsibility to serve that need. So that's where our advocacy and our education comes in, you know, twice as full. Jessica is also in favor of changing poverty guidelines to make them relative to a person's location. The guidelines are used to determine if someone's eligible for low-income assistance. For a family of four, the federal poverty guideline is an income of $30,000. Jessica told me that that puts Long Island at a disadvantage because the cost of living here is so high. While estimates vary on what a living wage is on Long Island, it's clear that Long Islanders need more than double 30K to pay for everything that they need. It doesn't match what it looks like here. In other words, we have the similar poverty guidelines to a demographic across the nation that may be suburban by landscape, two counties, and what they can afford to do with the same amount of money is a whole lot more than what we can do. And until that's addressed, we're always gonna be in this kind of rut of being able to provide for the working poor. Wow. So what is it that needs to, to change or what is it or who needs Regionalize to be Regionalize the poverty guideline. Say that again? Regionalize the poverty guideline. And what would that do exactly? Ah, that would make all the people who are not currently eligible for SNAP benefits eligible. So they too can have relief like everybody who is. But SNAP is just a piece. You know, SNAP provides food support. It does not provide household items, personal care items, toilet paper. You know, things that you're like, my God, that's a basic necessity. It's not included. Those programs have to be looked at. When they were created under President Johnson back in the 60s, they have not changed. They need to change. They need to kind of evolve just the way our network constantly has to reinvent, constantly evolve, you know? And, and I think that's what Long Islanders deserve. I think that's what every citizen deserves. Every person living within our United States deserves, period. Back at the Hempstead Food Chair, I catch up with Alan. He's the volunteer who also acts as a Spanish translator from earlier. Alan is putting the boxes, as, putting as many as he can into the actual trunk, but they just won't fit. <laughs> so he's putting some in the actual, asking them if he could put some in the car themselves. Could I just ask you a bit about what brought you here today and what this means to you? I'm just very honored to be able to come here. I've been here before and the quality of what they give us is always excellent. And they always throw in some surprise, like maybe a candle or something that you're not expecting or some vitamins or something. So that's why I like it. These sort of interactions are what makes all of this hard work worthwhile for Alan. It's the best, best feeling. You know, like I'm here, I feel good. Like some of the people, they, they say Sunday is fun day, go to a bar, enjoy themselves. This is for me fun day, you know. Over the next hour or so, more than a hundred cars come by and pick up their food. 
around 5 p.m., I start to see the end of the caravan. Okay, how many you got left? Two. All right, you got two boxes. Yep. Yep, you got two people, and that's it. Really, He's done. Really Come on up. She get hurt. He's loading up the last two cars. You're welcome. We did them all. We got everybody wow. got today. Everybody Perfect. got. You couldn't ask for anything better than that. But just as the volunteers were wrapping up, one last car pulled in. But they didn't have any more boxes left to give to the family inside. It just goes to show how much is needed here. Shares alone won't solve Long Island's food insecurity problem. There are just too many contributing factors to it. High housing prices are a serious problem. SNAP benefits dissipating is a serious problem. Lack of access to reliable transportation is a serious problem. Inflation is a serious problem. As Jessica from Long Island Cares said, there are concrete policy changes that our leaders need to make. And it seems the best way to pressure them into taking action is for people to advocate, advocate, advocate. But we all know governments are slow to action, especially when it comes to helping those who are most marginalized. So I'm not holding my breath to see what happens there on the political side of things. But in the meantime, I'm happy to see that there are people like John, James, and Alan on the literal front lines rolling up their sleeves and addressing food insecurity on Long Island. One box of fruits and veggies, rescued from a dumpster at a time. Even if that means coming out on Easter Sunday or on their birthday. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to John. Thanks for listening and for being part of our Color Code community. Our team here at STAT is Alyssa Ambrose, Hyacinth Empanado, Teresa Gaffney, and me, Nick St. Fleur. Anil Oza is our intern. Our theme music is by Brian Joel. Hyacinth Empanado contributed reporting to this episode. Thanks to the Commonwealth Fund for supporting this podcast. If you like the podcast, please leave a review and subscribe. And if you have any thoughts for us, you can reach us at colorcode at statnews.com. <laughs>